Welcome to Click Click Bang Bang, a photography podcast. We're back again. I'm your host, Toby. And I'm Mez. Hey, Mez. How are you going? Good. Bit wet. What about you? Oh, my God. Tell me about it. I've been swimming in my office thanks to this bloody water coming in from all parts. But... I don't care anymore because I'm so excited. We've got an extremely special guest today. Oh my God, Toby, we have an amazing guest. Our guest today is Knox Birdie. He's a real life photographic superhero with a whole Clark Kent Superman vibe going on. He's a chemistry teacher by day and epic street photographer by night. Canadian born, but living and working in Sydney, Knox says he's obsessed with photographing his daily experiences on the street. He focuses on capturing people and their relationships to urban spaces. He's a Leica ambassador and an all-round humble dude. Please welcome Knox Birdie. Something happens when you walk around and you're viewing the world as a picture. It's become just such part of me that I, I, I don't think I could stop. So Knox Bertie, thanks so much for, for coming on Click Click Bang Bang, a photography podcast. We're, we're really excited to have you and uh, yeah, we've got so much to talk about. The first question is a very, very obvious one for, for both of us and that's really just uh, when did you first pick up a camera? Look, I, I, I can always remember I, I had a camera in my room as a kid and I can always remember just kind of playing around with it. I actually, I still have that camera sitting beside me right now. <laughs> and um, I never had film in it, but I just always would sort of like line things up and, and click. And um, and so I don't, I kind of don't even really remember. I, I took a, um, I'm a chemistry teacher, so I, I did darkroom chemistry and learned the chemistry behind that. And I can remember shooting a bit, but even when I was doing that, I wasn't so into photography at that time. Um, and it was when I started teaching, I got a job in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And um, I came home for the summer and I grabbed that camera that I had as a kid. And I just, when I when I was in the Middle East, I just had all kinds of time. And, um, and just having that time, I just went out and I, I shot a lot. Yeah. And the really cool thing, it was right at that sort of intersection of, um, uh, you know, that transition to digital and it was a film camera, but in this small town that I was living in, they still had like one hour photoshops. Yeah. And so you go buy this like cheap film and then at night take your, you know, take your film into the one hour shop and get it all developed and they'd give you the prints and. And it, and it's also like a chemist and a dry cleaners all in yeah. one. Love those places. Where, where was that Knox? If you don't mind me asking. Um, it was a little, it was in the United Arab Emirates yep. and it was, uh, it was in a town called Ras Al Khaimah. Oh yeah. I know it well. My, my father used to live in Abu Dhabi for about 16 years. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that your experience of the Photoshop's reminds me, we used to uh, do very much the same thing. I had a, a film Canon back in the day and we used to take it down to the one hour shop and they'd give you those little booklets with all the, you know, and stick the, yeah. stick the pictures in, in the booklets for you. And 
Yeah. I still have them. Yeah. The ones we got in the Middle East had the little round cutout That's on the right. front. First <laughs> yeah. image would pop up in the round cutout. I know exactly what you mean. That's so funny. <laughs> That's unreal. I feel like I'm slightly too young um, for that conversation. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Of course, I remember that. Yeah, I always remember Yeah, going down to the chemist. And um, I loved those disposable um, film cameras. That was my kind of first introduction into film. And I was just the most exciting thing ever in the whole world was going back to get them. And be like, oh my God, did it come out? Yeah. And I guess like, did you just teach yourself or did you like just fumble your way through it through trial and error? Um, I just, you know, I had so much time there. So it was really trial and error. And honestly, like if I look back at those photos, they're terrible. Like, if, <laughs> you know, some of them kind of turn out good. And the, the odd thing, I, I do look through them quite a bit. The odd thing is like the way that I frame a shot has never really changed. So there's something that just like right from day one, where I place people where like I can tell it's my shot straight away but my ability to expose a shot was pretty rubbish (laughs) um and so it was all that kind of stuff and and so yeah but I was I was shooting a lot so I you know I was there for a couple of years and I was shooting almost every day and um you know and I have you know so much film from that sort of time going out and shooting and I carried that camera everywhere I went and so I think by the end of it you know, I, I had a pretty good grasp of it. Plus, it was just a really basic film camera where you didn't have much other than being able to control your f-stop and your shutter speed. Um, there was no light meter. And so it was really, I had to learn to just read light without a light meter. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that, I think that was a pretty good experience. Oh, to that's have. almost the best education you can have, to be honest. You know, to be able to look at a scene and just know what the exposure is going to be and not even have to, you know go through the mechanics of the camera just to innately learn it. I mean, I know, I know that because I, I grew up in the era of film and I learned my photography skills through film. And yeah, I feel like even though now today, the majority of my practice is digital. I just like, I always know what the exposure is going to be no matter what light situation I'm in. And it's just mm-hmm. becomes this like innate ability. And I think that when you learn that way, especially through film photography, it really does become second nature and it becomes ingrained to you in a way that, maybe digital sort of doesn't yeah i I mean i think about this quite a bit when i pick up a digital camera it's a different process and i i think one of the for me one of the major differences is when you're working on film and you don't have a light meter and you're using very basic equipment you tend to kind of look at the scene and try to figure it out and then take the shot yeah working with digital digital you you tend to take the shot and then try to figure it out oh yeah it's Mm -hmm. like totally reverse yeah, backwards, the way the yeah. brain works is is different, and it has. I think it has an impact because you're looking first versus shooting first, and it it's that looking that has a has a sort of different impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that even still today, the way you frame a shot is almost the same as when you were sort of learning back in the Middle East. Do you think that you've like deep down inside you've always been this sort of like artist kind of creative person? And you found photography as the vehicle for that? Um, I don't know. I don't even know if I'd consider myself so much of an artist now. I just, um. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Too I, modest. I really, yeah. I, Typical I artist. Honestly, I don't know. Like, And the odd thing is, like, I struggle to draw a stick man. And <laughs> I'm not kidding. And, and it's like, you know, my artistic ability anywhere else is just not there. But, um. I don't know. I I think the camera just, it always just kind of felt kind of right to me. And I always felt that I could kind of, 
I don't know, I felt like I could kind of control what I wanted it to look like, even right from the start. Yeah. Did there come a point where you felt you needed to be taught some knowledge or have you always just picked stuff up, you know, gone gone on your own little path and picked pick things up along the way? Um, I'm, I'm like... Uh, I probably like if if you knew me, I'm like one of those. I I don't sleep and I I stay up. I'm always reading. Like I'm just kind of naturally kind of curious. So I I yeah. do kind of just learn things and trial things, and I'm I tinker with stuff. And I you know I like I like ripping things apart. And you can compare <laughs> my darkroom. Like it's you know a lot of it is experimentation. Um, the only thing like I did learn a lot of that chemistry in school, but when I I got here to Australia, uh, I went to ACP. Yep. Um, Toby which knows that place well. Fellow alumni like it. <laughs> yeah, I loved, I absolutely loved ACP. I couldn't speak more highly of the place. I think the people yeah. working there at the time were phenomenal. It just had a really good vibe to it. It had, yep. um, if you remember, it had that library upstairs where you could just yep. like out and it had all those books. And um, the magazines. Yeah. yeah. It was awesome. And, yeah. and it had the community sort of dark room. And, and I used to like it. I just I lived right in that area, so I lived just down the street from there, and I oh, would walk up there at nights and just kind of hang out. And I think, I, from what I remember, it was you know you paid five dollars for a roll of Tri-X, and I think it was a five dollar entry fee into the dark room as well, and you could just kind of. I remember, it, I think once it went up to like seven dollars or something once, or and it was like whoa, <laughs> <laughs> or it was like seven dollars for color, like an hour for of like using the color chemistry, and it was like. Whoa. Yeah, but it, like, it was awesome, wasn't it? And and so I took a bunch of courses there, and um, like I did the darkroom course, and um, I I did a whole bunch of courses there for a couple of years, and and you know that really kind of helped me. Like the stuff that the stuff that I do in the darkroom now, the sort of basics of it was really kind of what I lot I, I learned there. Sorry, at, at ACP. And did it did did any of the other courses sort of solidify your style in some way? Like, do, do you feel you you have a style that you can describe to people? Um, I probably can now. Like I probably, I probably could verbalize like what I'm, what I'm looking for and what I do in those days. It, you know, if you've ever spent any time in the dark room, which it sounds like you guys have at first, you're just trying to get an image, <laughs> just make it work. Like it, it's the dark room's an interesting place because you like, it takes time. It takes a lot of time to get, to really learn it. And then to get to the point where you you feel really in control of it, where you can start to experiment more with it, is is um, you just got to spend a lot of time. Yeah. And and even if I, if I go for a couple of weeks without being in the dark room and come back, I can tell I haven't been in there. The more I'm in, the the yeah. more you can kind of see it and get it right. I have to admit, yeah. like just seeing your dark room before, like a part of me died inside because I have not been in a dark room for many many years and <laughs> and that makes me really sad because I really did start like my photography life and my career as a black and white film photographer and then you know co commercial work comes and creeps in and then you just rely on your digital camera all the time so um this conversation is making me slightly nostalgic. <laughs> I remember I set up, like I grew up in Canberra and then I moved to Sydney and I set up a darkroom in my mum's sauna because like we're Eastern European, so we have a sauna. And because um, she was like, I don't use the sauna, you can use it. And I would like drive from Sydney to Canberra just to use the darkroom. And then like it got too much. And so that would have been like 15 years ago since I've been in the darkroom. 
Wow. I was just picturing like a combo darkroom sauna scenario. Yeah, <laughs> it was really good. Like you, you could sauna, you could sauna, and then you could, you know, develop a photo. Develop. <laughs> and then you could have a shower. It was great. <laughs> Um, what I really love about your work, as soon as I saw it, um, uh, when you were recommended to me from our mutual friend, I was really taken aback um, in a really good way. Um, I just think you have this atmosphere to your work and this unique quality to your work where you just seem to be able to capture life in a suspended moment. Um are you able to tell our listeners yeah maybe just describe like what you do and how you do it like when you're out on the street like what are you feeling and what are you looking for um it's a good question nobody's ever asked me that before it's um the the best way that i could describe it is i don't shoot very often um not not meaning like i don't go out and shoot very often i shoot all the time but when i'm out shooting it wouldn't be odd for me to be out for a couple hours and only take two or three shots. Yeah, a lot of looking and watching, and I'm, I'm really, especially if I'm if I'm taking shots with people and portraits, I'm really looking for a specific moment. And what I I tend to do is I just kind of I, I'll set myself in the right position. Um, so if I'm on a train or if I'm anywhere and I see somebody and I think, okay, well, that person's interesting. I'm going to see just how this kind of plays out. I'll set up the lighting as if I'm in a studio. So I'll look at what's available and kind of set myself up to that lighting. And then I spend a lot of time just waiting and waiting for a moment. And the moment, the best way I could describe it is I'm looking for that moment where a person goes into sort of internal reflection. Right. Um, and you know, when you see people, like you see somebody in the train and you can tell they're just daydreaming and they go, they yeah, just go inside. They're somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of what I'm always looking for. And, mm-hmm. you know, years ago it was, it was easier to find because people weren't on phones and it's really <laughs> hard to find now. Yeah. You don't get those moments often yeah. because people are constantly distracted. Yeah. But you know, years ago, you, wherever you'd go, somebody would just be staring out the window and daydreaming because they didn't have their phone there. Yeah. Um, and so it is, it's getting harder and harder to find, but that, that's, that's probably the best way I could just describe it, I suppose. Maybe those people that you do end up capturing are the, the magical people who can't go inside their own mind. Yeah, real people. What draws you to that, that Knox, that, that sort of, like what, what compels you to search for that in your work? Um, yeah, another good question. I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I, um, I think... You know, I I shot probably what everybody else shot to start with. And if I look at kind of, you know, my shots from even a decade ago, it was just, it was pretty random stuff. And I was kind of trying sort of everything. And then it was, uh, it was, it was really when I moved here to Australia, I started, I started teaching and I was supply teaching and anybody who has ever worked as a supply teacher, Is it's that just like, like substitute, substitute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just like getting punched in the face oh, yeah. every day. <laughs> Kids are pricks when the substitute's there. Getting up in the morning and doing it again. And it's like the worst thing about being a substitute teacher is you like you go into these random staff rooms and nobody wants to know you because they yeah. they know you're not going to be there the next day. Mm. And then you're, the kids are acting poorly. So you just, you, you're really kind of on your own a lot. And on top of that, like I was just getting to know Sydney. So I was, I was taking like, I was, 
where you get the substitute jobs are all in the western suburbs, all over the the kind of west of Sydney. And so, you know, you're taking two or three ch- trains, and you're going out on these trains to suburbs where there's not many people. And so, I I think the camera was just a way to keep me off of going on a phone. Yeah, mm. I was kind of I think that's where I started looking for people who were maybe doing the same thing I was doing or feeling the same way I was feeling at that time. Right. Yeah. This is deep. I'm loving it. Oh, it makes sense. It makes but sense. no, that was that was kind of it. So I think like it was, you know, that was a really interesting time for me. And I think that's when I started kind of looking for other people who were on these kind of weird train trips. And you know, everybody was like when you, again, go back to that substitute teaching, like you're heading west when everybody else is heading east. Yeah. In this. <laughs> yeah. And like and often you have to catch like two or three trains and a bus. It's horrific. I know. And you're sitting around at stations. So, you know, you in some of these stations, you know, a train comes every 30 minutes. So you're sitting on this empty platform and trains are going by. Yeah. You're shooting like through the windows of the trains and playing with the light mm. and that kind of stuff. And that's... It was really in that time. That's kind of when I started doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think when I look at a lot of your work, um, you can really tell that it's Sydney, not for the fact that, you know, you can see things that look familiar, but for the light, that really strong kind of harsh concrete city light is what I really love in your work and how you sort of, you know, use your camera to to capture that kind of essence of what it's like to live in such a hot <laughs> Australian city. <laughs> Did you kind of like notice that when you moved here, that the light here is just so different? It is definitely different. And, um, and, it, and it's harsh, even to the extent where like if, if you're used to working with film, you use Sunny 16 a lot. Mm. But it's like I always say that Australia is more like Sunny 22 or Sunny. Absolutely. Because <laughs> it's just it's brighter. A really kind of unique light. But as you know, like there's certain times where certain times in the evening where the light really becomes pretty special oh, yeah. in Sydney. And, yeah. it, and it's it's really harsh and it really bounces around. Yeah. Not only is it harsh and it's got sharp edges, but it, it makes things glow. Yeah. And it has this like weird atmospheric haze from the pollution too that kind of gives it that like air to it for sure. I definitely feel like you you capture Sydney so beautifully. Oh, thank you. I, I The other thing I, I was really started finding interesting was combining a lot of the um, – uh, a lot of the lights that I would see around the Sydney's, uh, the city, sorry, so like lots of fluorescent lights yeah. combined the, you know, the natural light because they would kind of tend to be at about the same exposure. Yeah. And it had this very odd kind of feel to it. Yeah. And and the, the light on trains in particular can be quite oppressive. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's right overhead. Oh. So it's, it's good for portraiture because it's yeah. harsh light right from the kind of like the top side there's that shot of yours of the girl in the in the door just kind of standing looking off to the to the side oh, of that light that's, hitting that, her? That, that that's is exactly ridiculous. that light that you talk about just yeah. going straight down the top yeah, see because the door is there is like right behind that door if you know the trains it's like there is just one big bar yeah, of light yeah. shining yeah. straight down on her if you want a picture of the future imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever the moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one 
Don't let it happen. It depends on you. You talked a lot as well, some of the interviews I've seen of you about your love for, for George Orwell and Stanley Kubrick and a lot of these other sort of dystopian masters, I guess. Is that, that clearly that plays into, into what you're capturing as well. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely read a lot. And I, I was really obsessed with George Orwell for a long time. And part of it was the dystopian side. But George Orwell was very into truth. Um, mm -hmm. There's some very famous lines where he's like, you know, it's the hardest thing you can do is just is tell the truth. And he, he was, he was very much committed to that. And so I think when I was out shooting, I was very much thinking that, that I wanted to kind of capture, I didn't want to capture the prettiness of Sydney. I wanted to capture the truth yeah. of yeah. what I saw when I was going, when I was traveling around Sydney, it, it, it didn't look like you know, the postcards, it didn't look like the opera posted, you know, I didn't see kangaroos and red sand and it wasn't that it was, it was something else. And it was this like, you know, it was a harsh city and it was harsh light and it was hot. And, you know, people are walking around in ties and jackets because we come from Britain originally. And you're like, why are you wearing this stuff in 45 degree heat? Or a Santa suit at Christmas. Yeah. It's insane. And so like, there's this weird kind of thing that, you know, I've always Kind of, that's that's what I was trying to capture. Why is there fake snow at Christmas in Australia? I will never understand that. Yeah. <laughs> now you you are a Leica ambassador, um, which straight off the bat, I'll just get my pen and paper out. How did that come about? Yeah, it was. I, I, I've had a few people kind of ask me this. That's like, because what we is, all want to know because we all want to ask Leica, can we? <laughs> <laughs> ambassador? No, no, no. They, Sorry. Um, so they got they got in contact with me. This was probably about a year and a half ago, and and it was a real random sort of like email that just said, hey, "Willing to have a chat?" I was like, "Yeah, it's Leica." Um, and even in that conversation, it was you know there there's a launch of a product. Would you be potentially interested? This would be what we need. And so they kind of went through the whole thing. Didn't say what the camera was, and just said, "You know, we look." we think your work and your style of work would be pretty well suited for this launch. And we're looking for somebody that's got a unique viewpoint and does a lot of black and white stuff. Wow. And then once I agreed to it, then I found out what the camera was and then started working on and then just worked on the project from there. And it was really all about the kind of launch of that Q2 monochrome. And, um, and it was really interesting because when it was pitched to me, it was like a real fast turnaround. I had, you know, about a week to do the whole project. And I thought, oh, wow, God. You know, like these shots that you're looking at, there's about a hundred on Instagram, but that took me 15 years <laughs> to take those shots. And now we want this all in a week. I, know, I was just kind of thinking like, I'm sure you so don't sure understand my process. But, <laughs> but they were like, the guys at Leica have been absolutely phenomenal and they've been such an amazing company to work with. And then like, all of the kind of COVID stuff hit at that time. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Really hit in Europe. And so, like, all the launches kind of worldwide. So mm. it all got slowed down. And I had a whole bunch of time with it. I had time over Christmas. So I got a lot of time to shoot, which which was really good because it not only was I kind of, you know, using a new camera and I was really transitioning to, to using digital. Yeah, that must have been quite a shift mentally. Um, it, it was, but the one thing I'd say about that camera, um, and I'm not saying this just to plug it, by the way, it, it 
the files went like the first time I, I put a file up on screen, I was a bit worried. I kind of mm-hmm. thought, is this going to even work? You know, cause I'm film has a certain look in my work. I thought really kind of mm-hmm. depended on that, that film look, but the raw files that came out of the camera looked a, a hell of a lot like scanned film. Yeah right. yeah, right. The grayscale, like they, they had a density to them and they had a, a similar sort of grayscale. And so when I started working with them, it didn't feel, mm. it didn't feel that strange where I had worked with other digital files in black and white before and I just didn't like it. Like it was, it didn't have the grays and it's a hard thing to describe, but you know, sometimes when you're working with digital black and white, there's like a real yeah. hard edge to the blacks and the whites. Yep. And when you're working in a dark room, a lot you can see that there's like this gradient from black to white mm. um and this camera had it you know it was i think because it's kind of tuned into that and it has that gray scale you could see that gradient and so it didn't feel strange to me to use it um and then the other side of it is like the the lens was just so good like the first time i started looking yeah. at the photos i was like wow you know i totally get what you mean about you know like whenever I'm converting to black and white from my Canon, there's a thinness to it that I just don't like. It doesn't have that sort of robust kind of, um, that robust tonality to it that film does. And also I think definitely like, you know, with the hard edges of pixels compared to that soft, round, like silver halide, there's, you know, the way, mm-hmm. the way that they, the grain blends into each other with film is, is something that can be very hard to replicate. But I mean, when I saw the work you did from the Leica, the, the monochrome, the Q monochrome, I thought that was film. I legit mm-hmm. thought it was film. And then I had to Google and I was like, shit, that's, digital and then i saw the whole thing about how that sensor works and i my mind was blown and you know the like the amazing bit of that i didn't do a lot to those files people have kind of asked me like how did you make it look like film or how did you do xyz and i'm like like honestly i uploaded it to a computer and played a little bit with the contrast just to make sure that i i had i just wanted to make sure that i had the full range of tonality so i wanted it completely Mm. from white right to black and that's all I did was I just kind of played around with it to get to that that sort of grayscale. But what you're kind of seeing in those shots came Amazing. pretty much from the camera. Laika, I'm assuming, found you via your Instagram. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think I I think so. Did you make a conscious effort on Instagram to to grow your following, or did that just was that just a happy accident because your people were seeking out your kind of work? Yeah, it's Instagram. I mean, Instagram's a funny thing, isn't it? It's um, <laughs> funny's a word for I it. I don't know, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like every, I've, I've got a love hate with it, and I think everybody does, right? But, I think photographers definitely do. Yeah, for sure. But I, I also kind of think like, like for me personally, I was a guy that I wasn't a professional photographer, mm. and um, I didn't. I didn't come from an era or background in news photography or anything like that. So, you know, I was shooting here in Sydney for 10 years prior to opening that Instagram account and nobody wanted to look at anything that I did ever. <laughs> it was like in a folder or somewhere in a, you know, in my room. And, and that was about it. Yeah. And, and trying to get anybody to even see your work was like near impossible. Mm. And so what I do love about Instagram is it does open the door mm. and, um, and I think it really did for me, like it, it, it went fairly quickly. And if, you know, I probably just, 
put my work up on Instagram at a period of time before all that algorithm stuff. Sure. And, and it really took off. And then I, I did a couple takeovers on some, some pretty big Instagram accounts really early on. Right. That really kickstarted. Like I did a, a burn takeover. Right. Mm-hmm. Burn magazine. Burn magazine. Yeah. In 2017. And the work was featured on burn. So I had like a week and a half, you know, on burn and, oh, great. Um, in that period of time, like that bumped it up by thousands in a couple of weeks. And, um, so there was stuff like that, but like right now with the algorithm stuff and the way that Instagram is, it pretty much just stays exactly as, as is. Yeah. It's the same with mine. I don't think it, I don't, I think the days of Instagram accounts growing are sort of in the past. Twitter's where it's at now, guys. Sorry to tell you, but (laughs) Twitter's where all the (laughs) photographers went. (laughs) Like, well, and it's become a bit sort of like it's different now, isn't it? Like, I just feel like I'm on Facebook, you know? Uh, That's the thing that, you know, that's the thing that I struggle with. I struggle with social media. I struggle with it so much because I really, I don't think it suits my work. (laughs) I just, I hate everything about it. Like, I feel like on one hand it democratizes the, uh, democratizes art in a lot of ways. But then on the other hand, it's like, You become a slave to it. I think you're absolutely right, though. Like, there's there's shots that I take and I'm working on the darkroom that I absolutely love, but I also know that it's not going to work on Instagram. Yeah. Like, it would work in a gallery space because of the way it's, but it, it doesn't stick out in that small format yeah. in, a, in a screen. Yeah, I feel like mm. with, with your work, your work definitely, I can just see, like, in, in a gallery or in a book. Do, do you have any plans to have any kind of in-person exhibitions or produce anything in print by any chance? I've got an exhibition coming up this year. I can't go through the details of it Ooh. now, but I'm working on that sort of in the background. Awesome. giving me sort of an opportunity to kind of combine some of the digital stuff and also, you know, some of the, the my other kind of ideas around the work. And I'm going to do a bit of darkroom stuff for that oh, as well. Awesome. And I want to kind of do a bit of sort of unique stuff where I'm combining like multiple images and printing across multiple pages and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I'm really excited about. I'm yeah, always cool. kind of in the background somewhat working on a book <laughs> just gotta do it man somewhat just gotta just gotta do book. it yeah just say to yourself today's the day <laughs> i was working on a book for 10 years and then i was like wait why don't i just do it and then i did it <laughs> <laughs> well i saw that with your book like that's that is it's probably i'm probably at that point where i just need to do it you know it's um like what i do when i'm working when i'm working in here is is I'll kind of get to like a, a finalized print and I'm printing them all in the same format and then I'm putting them into books and then playing around with sort of book orders yeah. in there. I've got hundreds of prints. So I've kind of got probably enough that I could kind of put something together. It's always sort of in the back of my mind. So we can look forward mm, to seeing nice. you in the real, in IRL, seeing your work in IRL. <laughs> sometime soon you'll have to let us know because we'll totally pump it up for you oh that'd be great thanks all of our listeners but it's it's so like that's that's like you know instagram is is great but that's the kind of bit that excites me more like getting work up on a wall and i'm really like we're spending a lot of time in the darkroom i'm really into prints like if it doesn't work in a print i kind of don't care like if it works on a screen and you can't print it bigger than your screen I think I that's know. that's you know I think there's a lot of craft 
in photography that is disappearing and I think just the the art of the print and people actually printing their work is definitely becoming a lost art which is really unfortunate I mean the industry is moving more digital and more digital every day we just did a whole episode on nfts for god's sake and that was like a total mind bender which I had nightmares for weeks I mean do you think that we are losing the craft of photography Probably yes and no. I, I there, there's a reemergence of of people doing this sort of stuff. If if I went back to say 2008, 2009, 2010, like, there was a period of time where it was like it was getting hard to find yeah. film. Cameras were like dirt, dirt cheap. So cheap. Why didn't I buy a Mamiya Seven then? Exactly. And. And they really were because it was like, you know, everything's gone digital and this stuff is gone. And I can remember periods of time, like I started making darkroom chemicals um, because I couldn't get them here in Australia. Like there's a period of time where rot and all, you just couldn't get your hands on it. So I had to figure out how to, the chemistry behind it and make it. Wow. Oh lucky, you're ke- lucky you're a science teacher. <laughs> yeah. But then it's sort of, you can see now it's like, it's changed. It's become a real hipster kind of thing, but it's, that's not bad either because it's, it's meant that you know, companies are producing yeah, this stuff again. I think the where, hipster yeah. movement has kept Fujifilm going. But I, like, if it wasn't for that, I, I, like, it really felt for a period of time like it was going to proper die out. Yeah. Um, and probably the kind of world of photography is now kind of merged into more of an acceptance of film again, where mm. you know, there's kind of, it's probably kind of both. And mm. Mm. Um, I, I think it, I think that's probably a good thing. And then I, I also think, you know, there is a kind of movement towards, you know, doing things yourself and going back to kind of basics and getting getting away from screens. And so I think we'll I think we will see more and more of that in the future. Mm-hmm. The great thing about working this way is, you know, you can grab a roll of film um, and I can put it into an old camera that's, you know, it's running on, you know, springs and levers and, you know, no batteries. And really the only electricity is the light in the enlarger. But at the end of the day, you end up with a a print and you haven't touched a computer or electronics or anything at all. And you just kind of in your own kind of space doing that. And it's, there's, I, I think there's something really, really special about that still. Absolutely. I totally agree. You talked just then about making your own, your own chemicals and just on the teaching front is your, have you ever, you know, do your students know that you have this kind of other life and do you ever take, that that chemistry into the classroom or it's just you keep them completely separate um i've always kept them really separate um as a high school teacher you just you you tend to keep your personal life and 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 your your life as a teacher probably pretty separate um i have taught it because i've I've taught you know here in australia i've taught hsc chemistry for years and years and um in the hsc course you do go into halides and and so you can teach that process. So I have shown classes how you can make these chemicals. And what we made was we looked up the, the chemicals that, uh, that would have been used in World War II and the guys would have made in their helmets. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Whoa. What they made that stuff out of was um, what was available to them, which was, was Panadol or some version of Panadol, which is the OH group, the OL at the end of Panadol. <laughs> um, and then they would combine that with... Um, with drain cleaner, oh my God. which is where they'd get the sodium hydroxide yes. from, a chemical that they would use in the 
process of brewing and brewing beer. And if they could get their hands on those three things, they could make their chemicals. And um, wow. and if you think during war, there was would have been lots of beer around. Yeah. <laughs> there probably were cleaning lots of toilets. <laughs> and there was probably lots of Panadol or something. Yeah, plenty of Panadol. It's so hectic. Get those three things. It's a really simple process. You don't really need heat. You don't need anything. You can just combine them. And in the combination of that, if you learn the process of it, you can make a really solid developer that still works well today. Well, I, I still use. I've got a bottle of it here right now. Wow. How do you fix? How did? How did they fix the image at the end? Well, the fixer. I'm not. I'm not sure. I've never looked into what fixers they would have used back then. But fixers probably would have been a. a, a it's probably a yeah. simpler um, process to figure that out. I don't know. I'd Here's have to. Homework, that's Lawrence. one thing I have. What the, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'll come back to you on that one. Please don't know. Like, can you actually come back to me on that? Like, can you DM me? I really want to know. <laughs> Good question. I'll have to look it up. We were going, we were moving up and down. We were surveying the seabed. The temperature was plummeting. We were brushing the snow off ourselves. And then we found it. With a few days left to go, we found it on the seabed. We'd started to give up hope, but there it was. Did you see on the news today? that they found the endurance shipwreck so in like 1915 this antarctic icebreaker um sunk in antarctica and on board was the famous most amazing photographer frank hurley he was on board he was like the exhibition photographer so the freaking boat sinks Frank Hurley dives into the guts of the ship to save his glass plate negatives. He saves 400 of them. I don't know how many he packed. Probably a lot. He saves 400 of them, gets them out on the ice. He's freezing. He's hypothermic. So then they've got to like, there's no ship. This is a big segue. There's like no ship. So he ha- they have to carry all their stuff um, and put it on like a smaller boat to get to another island. So he can only take like 112 glass plate negatives. So he takes 112, carries them on his freaking back, and he takes over the 500 days they were trapped in Antarctica, he takes 112 glass plate negatives of Antarctica, and they're some of the most beautiful and amazing photographs of Antarctica. Anyway, they found the ship. That's incredible. That's like the Endurance, that Shackleton story. And and if you find it interesting, the book Endurance, it's probably one of the best books I've ever read in my life. That book is phenomenal because it goes through like that journey step by step by step. The, they have some of those photographs that you're talking about are in that in that book. Mm. His negatives and um, and his prints, which are phenomenal. Yeah. And they've got like you know the the dogs right when the ship went down and how they were loading it up and they were dragging the ships across the ice it it's incredible that story he's an amazing photographer and one thing i guess that kind of reminds me of of your work of his is the sandwiching of the negatives because he was like the king of that he and no one ever knew that he did it you know from his world war ii photos to the antarctic photos a lot of them are, are, are two negatives in one and and you do that quite a lot is that something you're doing post sandwiching those negatives post in your darkroom or are you doing it in the camera um i i do it both ways um I, and i i use i I use all kinds of different techniques. So it's 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 not always just sandwich and eggs. Like sometimes I'm printing two shots on paper. So yeah. putting a in and then taking a shot and then putting another negative in and taking a shot. 
Um, so I, yeah, all sorts of different things. Some of them are double exposures in camera as well. In those days, like that was a technique that was a, you know, if you go way back through the history of photography, it was a generally accepted, you know, practice. Yeah. Like those types of size of negatives, you almost, you almost had to do it. Otherwise, there's no way you'd be able to control the light and dark. And so the purpose of sandwiching the negs would have been to get a, you know, to get a complete image where it's basically like the original HDR images, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so cool. Like what they were doing back then with that stuff oh. was absolutely amazing. When he was shooting World War One, he would, like the bomb would come and he would go set the camera up in the crater because he was like, what are the chances it's going to hit the same <laughs> spot again? What a psycho. I love it. Do those, are those some of your inspirations, Knox? Do you have a, is there a list of photographers that you kind of, you know, draw on for, for ideas or, or inspiration? Be honest with you, I don't look at that much photography. Um, yeah. And, and never really have. That's, it's never really been my thing to do. Um, the, the, I mean, there's certain photographers that I, I find really fascinating. Like from a darkroom perspective, I, I really like the work of Ralph Gibson, the original kind of stuff that he did. And he's kind of got a, there's a bit of resurgence of his work. Like Leica has been really promoting him recently. But when you look at the way that he was developing um, negatives way back when, it was a really unique sort of style. And I've probably kind of researched the way he would expose and develop more than anyone else. Um, so that would sort certainly be kind of one influence. Um, I absolutely love Bruce Davidson's subway stuff. Uh, and so yeah. Yeah. started working in like doing work in, in on the trains here in Sydney. I was, I was probably really influenced by what he was doing. Cause it was, I, I just felt his work was just, it, it was brutal and it was hard, but it was so, beautifully poetic as well mm. and the real kind of beauty to everything and I, I still love what he does and um yeah. so that you know there was there was obviously there was that um yeah I don't know kind of going back you know I you know I've, I've read all the kind of theory behind those those old older kind of guys and I still use a lot of that kind of old technique especially in exposure yeah, you know, to really make sure that when I'm looking at a scene, I get what I want to be black, black, or choose what I want to be black. And so, um, you know, I I spent a lot of time studying Ansel Adams and and studying what he did in the dark room and trying to figure out kind of what he probably was thinking when he was working. That's interesting. Yeah, cool. You know, like I'm working on the street. A lot of like he's a landscape guy, but a lot of I'm I'm still all the time. So it's like. I am thinking like that landscape style of making sure that I have it all exposed correctly. For some kind of budding street photographers, and even for myself, there's a there is a kind of an innate fear of of street photography for some people in in terms of especially these days. You know, people sort of saying, "Hey, you're taking my photo," or, or that sort of stuff. Are you deliberately sort of you know picking a spot, sitting there for ages, just to kind of negate that, or is that just something that you feel is a, is a is a better way to express yourself I, I think if you want to take really good street photos you've got to get really close to people and you got to have a bit of guts and so like there is an element to that like I think part of the reason why most people's street photos don't work is they're just too far away and are afraid to face people face to face and I can tell when I'm kind of being a chicken because I got a lot of 
the backs of people's heads and you're like <laughs> you know and you know i used to have written on the back of my cameras and tape like just take the shot and then deal with it afterwards and so my oh, what a great idea like my philosophy was always just you know take the shot and then deal with it and <laughs> um and and i i've never i don't know i've never really had too much of a problem with it and i get really close to people like i'm using 20 milliliter millimeter lenses and 24 millimeter lenses and like filling a frame with a person. So like I'm... You're, yeah, you're in yeah, their wow. face. You're right up their nose, yeah. But I also think sometimes just a smile can go a long way on the street. Yeah. And your camera's not that big either. It's small and it and you seem like quite a gentle person just speaking with you. Like you're not like, you don't really have much kind of like, you know, wanker bravado or anything like that. So you know what I mean? <laughs> I it's almost like you've kind of got to learn to be invisible inconspicuous in in many ways to to get into that intimate space with people yeah and i think also like when you when you're hiding something people know it oh totally yeah that's a good point you look weird you look like you're hiding something it's become sort of trendy where you know for years in sydney i didn't see anybody ever and now i can kind of pick certain street corners where i know i'm going to run into people (laughs) there is a like you know i i I don't want to sound arrogant here, but the, you know, there's certain people like are kind of watching, just like you just, it's you know, just relax, you know, it's <laughs> loosen up. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I think that kind of goes a long way. But I also think it's sort of like if somebody does get really upset, you know, just what goes a long way too is just going, hey, you know, I'm just taking shots, man. It's not a yeah, I'm not trying to offend you. And like if you get confrontational with people, you get confrontation back. Totally. Yeah, I think it's all about the vibe you go into into it with, mm. for sure. I the only time I've ever run into trouble was in um, Rome when this old Italian woman with flowers on her head heard the click of my Pentax because it's so loud, and she was like, "Hey!" <laughs> and I was like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry." <laughs> but I, I think you know you also have to be like. In saying that, like I shot with a Pentax six by seven for a long time. That's a that big like, fucking camera, dude. And that's a gu- that's like a gun going off. Yes. Right? And, <laughs> but you're not. There's no way you're hiding it. And part of the reason why I shot with that camera was it was like it forces you. Like you can't hide, so you might as well just not hide. Yeah, right. Like I also think you you know you you also got to be kind of a judge of you got to read the scenario yeah. as well. Like something not right and. Maybe I won't take that shot because that might end it in a confrontation. And yeah, yeah. I, you know, the other thing is you see a lot of people that are, you know, off their heads a bit or on drugs or something. You think, yeah, I'll just avoid that. And yeah, pick your moments. Do you think you've learned a lot about people through your street photography and your observations of people on the street? Probably yes and no. I, I think I've probably learned a lot about Sydney. In the process, like I, I feel like I know the nooks and crannies of this city very well. Um, you know how the kind of city operates, and and I think, you know, I, I I think I've learned a lot about you know the the kind of demographics of the city and you know how it operates and where people live and what people's lives are probably actually really like. And I find like one of the times of days I love going out is sort of that seven eight p.m. at night when there's a certain group of people coming back from city jobs at that time. And, you know, I live in, I live in Tempe, which is kind of heading South by the airport and the neighborhoods South of here or West of here, you know, people coming from the city going there, you know, 
I mean, they're all expensive suburbs now. Everything in Sydney is, but it is a different demographic. And at a certain period of at night, you've got people that are, you know, working long, hard days and they're working in the city and they're living in way out suburbs. And it, it has a unique look, look to it. You can see, you can see the struggle that people are going through to live in this city. You talked earlier about, you know, people have got phones now and before they didn't. Have you ever sort of looked chronologically backwards and, and noticed a, a change in the way people are expressing themselves or in the things that they're doing? That That's probably the biggest change that I've seen is, is how th- there is a definite change that people are more individual in terms of they're living in this world on their phone and in their in their heads and people don't yep. react or interact with each each other. It wasn't uncommon 10 years ago, like just before that kind of iPhone era to, you know, in Sydney, get on a train, you'd have lots of conversations with people. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And that would be properly strange now. Yeah. People will think that <laughs> so that true. you're weird. Yeah. yeah. I'm a chatter and people just think I'm strange. I just don't get public transport because people think I'm weird. I don't know. There was, there was something different about it. And it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, like I what I see is I I think people look and probably are more stressed mm-hmm. yeah when you got on a train in the past or when you're going to and from work if you remember you used to always get those little subway papers or those yeah those free magazines it, they were left kind of cluttered all over the trains but other than that it was like you know nobody from work could get a hold of you and nobody really from home was getting a hold of you so it was like your time to just sort of chill out yeah. and now it's people yeah. on phones working and there's no escape from it yeah mm. people are still Gosh. sending emails at 7 p.m and they're never you're, disconnecting you're documenting something really really important i think yeah you know without perhaps without realizing it but yeah i thought that about your your work i thought it would be a fascinating exercise to just work backwards and you know, see this marked marked change, even, you know, 10, 10 years more from now, even, even yeah. it would just be a really interesting exercise. Some parts don't change at all. Yeah. Parts of the city have changed. Like I shot a lot. I lived in around King's Cross for a while. So I shot in around there and that's changed dramatically. Oh yeah. oh yeah. Those shots from a decade ago, they're really different. The shots I took in and around Redfern. Yeah. Redfern's like a whole different planet now. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And, you know, there's still... You know, there's still elements of that kind of like what it, it used to be, but it is a different city in, in sort of in that capacity anyways. I wonder, one wonders if there is a final question at all, one question that will answer all questions. This is kind of a two-part question. The first part of the question is, do you have a clear idea in your mind of what you want to shoot when you walk out the door? That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, does that ever restrict your creative process if those moments don't appear? I'd say yes and no to both. <laughs> there, there's like there's different ways in which I would shoot. Um, I often will wander down to the station and just read a book and take my camera with me. Okay. And I'm not specifically going out to shoot. And if the shot pops up, it pops up. And so that's one way I, I shoot. And so I'm not even looking for a shot. And I do that quite frequently. Um, generally, if I'm going out to shoot, I will go out less with what I'm trying to find, but more style in mind. Okay. And so I often think about kind of technique or experimenting with something. And so 
What I've really tried to do is get into a mindset where I'm constantly trying something new or experimenting so I never get kind of stuck or rigid in the way that I'm ever shooting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would get really bored if I was doing that. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to try this. And I go out with the idea of trying something new all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of the yes and no. So we're like limiting what I'm doing. I think that's, that's probably a way that I use to, to, so that I'm not limiting what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. That's a good tip actually. I'll take that one. I feel like you're this, um, uh, equal mix of like mad scientist, um, free <laughs> artist, uh, you know what I mean? Like you're this like a conundrum in a way of the science and then this like free spirited artist and it's like how you're balancing it. And I guess that's how you get your unique vision. It's also like it, it's there's there's so many different sides to it, right? Where like when you're out shooting, it's got to be quite loose and relaxed mm-hmm. and free. And you're right sort of in that. And then even when I'm kind of thinking about working in the darkroom, but then when you're in the darkroom and I'm printing or in terms of process, I'm really meticulous. Oh, and, yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, well, you just waste a lot of paper or you just uh, – um, or you just can't get to what you want. You kind of always want to kind of be able to get back to what you want as well. So yeah. I'm fairly meticulous in the, in the dark room. I have a final question. <laughs> it's like the lamest question. <laughs> What's your favorite black and white film to shoot? Um, if I could only pick one, I'd pick Tri X okay. because it's such a it, typical answer. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> No, it's it's like it's a versatile you know, film. Yeah, because you could use it in sort of any scenario, yeah. and the grain structure of it's beautiful. Yeah, it, it's quite lovely. It has a beautiful contrast to it too. Personally, I'm a Ilford HP five, but we can still be friends. We can coexist. <laughs> I'm though. I'm not like I. I would pick that, but I'm not one of those guys that like I'm oh, gonna yeah. just use yeah, try. No, no, no. I didn't get that from you. I like. I actually like playing around with with 3200 films too. Yeah, right. I love massively blowing up 3200 films so that the grain's massive. Okay, I have more homework for you then. (laughs) I've heard, correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard that they don't make 1632 ISO film anymore. It's all actually 400 and then you're just pushing it when you set it to 3200 on your camera and how you develop it. There is a way that you can test the film speed. Oh. And I, w- I would say that from the tests that I've done on it, that the Ilford 3200 is 1,000. Okay. And that um, the T-Max is 800. Well, there you go. You, you already that's, knew the answer. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of like if, if I were to do the test, like I don't think it's 400. Definitely not. My final question is is more lame than Mez's. <laughs> <laughs> If, if you can believe that. And it has nothing to do with photography. Um, but as you're a chemistry teacher, I thought I would ask you that, have you ever seen Breaking Bad? And did you like it? And is it possible? Um, one of the things, yes, and I loved Breaking Bad. One of the things I loved about, break, about Breaking Bad was whoever did the chemistry behind that show, they did the research and they got it right. I love oh, wow. that. Great. That's good to know. There was lots of bits of that show where you'd go... You know that's that's pretty interesting. I'll tell a I'll tell a kind of final a, a story that going back to all those stories I told about supply teaching. I won't name the school, but there was one school that I worked at in a particularly rough suburb in in Sydney, and I did a three week block there. 
And in the three-week block I was there, um, the police came in and did a meet all of the science teachers. And the reason why they did that was because in order to make certain drugs, you need to have certain glassware. And the only way you can get that glassware is either from hospitals or from schools. And all the glassware is coded to a specific school. And so they kept doing raids of these kind of makeshift drug labs and finding that this glassware was getting tracked back to the school. So they're saying like, you guys as teachers, you got to make sure that you're locking this up and you're locking this up and you're locking this up and this up. So I found, I found that like, that was really early on in Sydney and I found that really fascinating, but um, yeah, interesting show, but some of that probably is very possible. Yeah, Mr. White. Yes, science. We have thoroughly enjoyed having you on the podcast. Yeah, what a treat. It's been amazing. It's been so good to get to know you a little bit. And um, I hope we can all stay in touch. And I can't wait for your exhibition. Same. Oh, I really appreciate you guys having me. It's been, yeah, it's been fun. It's been pretty yeah. relaxed. Oh, mate, it's loose over here. You're an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Knox. Thank you so much. Thank you. Click, click, bang, bang, a photography podcast is produced by Meredith Schofield and Toby Farage. Oh, my God, that's us. It is us, Mez. But look, we're not the only two cool cats behind this thing, are we? No, our amazing branding is done by Jacqueline Ding, a.k.a. your better half, Topes. Definitely my better half. And the fantastic music that you're hearing. Let's just have another little listen. Sweet tunes. That fantastic theme was composed by our good friend, Simon Figuzzi, a legend of the music scene. Such a legend. You can subscribe to this podcast everywhere. Everywhere. Spotify, Apple, Google. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us. It really helps people find our podcast. And you can check us on the socials at CCBB Podcast. We'll see you soon. Bye.